hello everybody and welcome to this event. How will COVID-19 kickstart entrepreneurship? Um, presented by the United States Study Centre and featuring um, a range of pretty amazing Australian entrepreneurs who have entered the US market. And I'll be introducing them a little bit later. But I wanted to, as well as welcoming you here today and um, hoping that you'll get involved in this session, I really want to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of, um, of, of the land of Australia. Usually when we are at the University of Sydney, we're talking about the land on which the University of Sydney is. So given that this is a University of Sydney, we're University of Sydney Centre, this is a University of Sydney event, um, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land of the University of Sydney. The university sits on the um, land of the Eora Nation, the Gadigal people, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and also the emerging leaders. And at the university, we have a number of those emerging leaders. And I also, I acknowledge that wherever you are today, um, there will be traditional owners of that land, and I pay my respects to the elders of that land, past, present, and future leaders as well. Now, as I said, welcome to this event today. It's really great to be able to talk about this research and, and, um, and hear from these amazing Australian CEOs. Um, and as the event goes on today, you may find that you have some questions that come up. Please use the Q&A box as part of the, the Zoom event. It's in the bottom panel there. Um, you can ask questions in there and at the end, um, when we've heard a little bit from the panellists, there'll be an, um, an opportunity for me to put some of those questions to the panellists. And, um, uh, and that'll be great. So what I'm going to do to start with is I'm going to tell you a little bit about this research that we have done uh, that looks at entrepreneurship in the United States and the context and lessons for Australia. And then we're going to hear from the panellists. So bear with me a little bit because there's some context around uh, the research that, that I think is valuable as we hear um, from these successful companies. So the first thing I guess to think about is the fact that entrepreneurship is important because it results in the creation of new firms. And new firms are the ones that tend to be where jobs are being created in the economy. And when we look at the comparison data uh, entrepreneurship in Australia and the United States, one of the things that we see is that Australia is lagging on a number of the entrepreneurship measurements that are looked at. And so there are some things that we can learn from the US in this context. Um, so in this context, um, my colleague, Don Scott Chemis and I looked at a number of particular things. And in the context of when we were doing this research, so a lot of this research was done last year, 2019. And then as we brought it to publication, um, the coronavirus was really starting to have an impact. So it gave us the opportunity to also have a look at what happens in a downturn to entrepreneurship. And so we've added some of that context into the report, um, which was kind of held it up a little bit, but was worthwhile given the current situation that um, our economy and the US economy is in. So, so we looked at the likely um, economic impacts of a downturn and what happened in the US. They've had a much more recent experience of downturns than we have in Australia, given that after the global financial crisis, the US went into quite a deep recession that Australia didn't have. So they've had that more recent experience. Then we also looked at how, entrepreneur, 
how entrepreneurial attitudes differ between Australia and the United States. And then we also had a look at what locations rank highly for businesses that are looking to enter the US market. So Australian businesses that are looking to enter the US market. And as part of all of that work, we interviewed a number of Australian organisations who have entered the US market and also organisations that help entrepreneurs um, consider new markets um, like Austrade um, and that also support entrepreneurs when they enter the US market like the Aussie Founders Network. So we, we, we spoke to a, a large number of organisations, entrepreneurs themselves and entrepreneurial support organisations. And so really, and then we, and we published their insights um, in this report, which Janine um, and Mara, our fantastic events people, have put up on the screen so that you can please go and check it out. I always assume when we're having events that people haven't read the research, so um, please go and, and, and check it out. And really, this event I see as a continuation of that work that we've been doing um, in a more public forum, because today we're joined by three of the, three of the leaders of the companies that we spoke to, um, uh, we've, and what I'm going to do in a minute is I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and give you their elevator pitch um, about their company, and then we've got some questions to go into. Before we do that, I just want to let you know uh, one person um, who was joining the panel um, has been unable um, to at late notice due to um, a family emergency, and we're really sorry that Trenna Blair is unable to, to join us today, and we send um, her our best wishes. Um, but I just wanted to acknowledge that Trena um, has been very instrumental in terms of introducing us to a number of the companies that we studied as part of this report. So we're sorry that she's not able to join us here today. But without any more ado, I'm going to ask the panellists to introduce themselves um, because, you know, you've heard enough from me. Uh, uh, and so I'm not going to read out their bios. I'm going to get you, them to tell you about themselves and a little bit about their company. And Philip, I'm going to start with you. Okay, thanks, Claire. And good morning, Claire. And good morning, colleagues joining us. A little bit of background. Um, Philip Campbell's my name, and I'm a cognitive science and a uh, focus on the way the brain and mind process information, how we learn, and then how we adapt and apply that uh, new learning, particularly in uh, rapidly changing business environments. A little bit like what we're going through uh, through now, you might say. I'm also a governor of the American Chamber of Commerce in Sydney, and my company is uh, EnigmaFit, and we work with uh, senior executives and senior partners in New York with organizations such as the Boston Consulting Group, uh, Nespresso, Marsh, Novartis, Anthem Insurance, etc. And we do something quite unique, uh, which was great to find out in the USA because they haven't come across of it. We actually test and measure and develop executives' fluid thinking capability, which is their brain's ability to chart their organization's path through uncharted waters, much like they're dealing with uh, COVID-19. And, and, and also, I think Black Lives Matter is another path they're going to have to chart through. So it's when they have to deal with situations they've never dealt with before, and they can't just rely on past experience. So it's the ability to adapt quickly and effectively, particularly under high pressure situations that we work them with. And uh, just to put it in a very simple definition, fluid thinking is basically being defined as what the brain uses when it doesn't know what to do. And I think there's quite a few people that can, uh, that can relate to that. 
Um, just briefly, we launched in uh, New York because we were talking to a lot of multinational companies here in Australia, which were really interested. But then they said, oh, the decision has to be made in head office. So our target market is large corporations going through significant change, but they also need to be uh, open to innovative leadership development programs and particularly the ability of the executives to lead their uh, teams and organisations through transformation and change programs and also where digitisation and AI is a catalyst to the change, which is something we're working closely with BCG on. So um, right now, our, our primary focus is New York, which means I'm getting up very early or staying up very late, unfortunately. And we're also doing work in uh, Atlanta, which has a surprising number of head offices there, and plus on the West Coast uh, and in, particularly in Seattle. Great. Thank you, Philip. That was a great overview. And um, I was going to say as well, where are most of your um, customers in the US? So, Philip, mostly New York and Atlanta? Yeah, and, and uh, obviously looking to develop there. Uh, the, the reason we chose New York was um, uh, a lot of the head offices of the major companies we were, were looking at were based, uh, were based in New York. Uh, and the thing is, if you get work with the head office, then they've got different offices throughout the rest of the state. So our strategy was, let's talk to the people at the top and what started the reason we're getting work in Atlanta now is that uh, a couple of the head offices in yeah. New York have said, here's some of our subsidiaries and other companies we'd like you to work with. So it was a very deliberate strategy to start there. And a, a little bit later, I can go into uh, how we actually did the launch there, if that would be useful yeah. to people. Great. Alex, over to you. Thanks, Claire. Uh, yeah, so as Claire mentioned, my name's Alex. Um, I'm the CEO of OR, so AWE, and that stands for Augmented Web Experiences. So really, um, hopefully you're all familiar with kind of augmented reality and virtual reality, but basically AR and VR experiences that run entirely in a web browser. So traditionally, um, they've been kind of, you know, native apps um, that need to be downloaded and installed, but experiences created with our software can, can run entirely in standard web browsers, so like Chrome, Safari, et cetera, across multiple devices. So at our heart, um, we're primarily developers and technologists, I guess. So we started kind of doing R&D back in computer vision, um, back in probably 2007, when we were running another company. Um, and we started this as a new venture, really with bringing um, the aim of bringing AR to the web browser and really trying to make it as democratized as possible, run across as many different devices as possible as well. Not to make people have to think about what type of device they were using to experience it or even to create it um, and not to have to be locked into specific kind of platforms as well. Um, so the web really for us or really has the biggest audience and the highest number of developers. So that was another reason why we thought that was a really good market. Um, so we launched in 2016 um, as a software as a service, a SaaS platform, and we were the first company in the world to offer AR um, uh, creation and publishing in the web browser. And at that time we had just location-based AR, so the ability to add digital content or overlay digital content um, at real world locations. So 
using latitude, longitude, altitude, and your orientation. So if you're using a mobile device, you could look around you and see digital content. That could be wayfinding um, content. It could be, you know, treasure hunt type of thing, information about where you are and what's around you. Um, so really our CTO um, was very heavily involved years and years ago, working with the W3C and the different web browser organisations like Mozilla and Chrome to really define the web standards necessary to support AR in the web. Um, back then, we were definitely considered a little bit crazy and probably heretics because people really weren't thinking of the web anymore. They were really moving across. You know, this is when the iPhone was launched and things. So they were really thinking about moving across to, um, you know, the iOS platform and then Android and creating these standalone apps. And, you know, those companies are really looking to, to um, benefit from that as well. Um, they were really big, but more and more people, are, I guess, are now starting to see that that creates quite a lot of friction asking your customers or, or different people, your audiences to um, be aware an app exists, to download that app and to keep reusing that app. So for us, the web is a really seamless and frictionless experience because you can just click on the link. Um, so when we launched, yeah, back in 2016 with um, location-based AR, we followed that up probably about 10 months or 11 months later with image-based AR, and we were the first company to do that commercially as well. Um, so that's basically where you can use your device. So it can be a computer, tablet, PC, um, some you know types of glasses as well, um, AR glasses to basically scan a hold over an image and then um, you can see digital content overlaid on that. So that can be things like photos, posters, product packaging, which is really popular now. Um, and then any of the, the digital content, so they can be images, videos, 3D scenes and different content, audio can then become interactive as well. So you're kind of creating or taking the web from being a very two-dimensional and linear plane into being a kind of immersive and, and three-dimensional plane and since then we've really evolved the platform as well we support face tracking relative ar web vr as well um, and a lot more rolling out soon and um, you know for us our customers are really influencing our roadmap heavily at the moment probably far more than they ever had as kind of web ar starts taking off and like philip we've got lots of fun with time zones um, and i'll talk a little bit later about our distributed team as well but we tend to do very early mornings and very late nights for our team that's based here in Australia. Great, thank, thanks, Alex. Um, it's, you know, this is such a great panel because we've got such an interesting mix of technologies as well. Um, and, you know, that's, that is one of the things that strikes me as being so interesting about what's happening here in Australia in terms of the entrepreneurs that we have here. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting to hear as well about the length of time that your companies have kind of, and, and the pivoting that you've been doing along the way. Um, but I'm going to um, hand over to Vikram now and hear um, about his cutting edge technology uh, and his company um, as well as he introduces himself. Thanks, Vikram. Thank you, Claire, and uh, good morning. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here today. Um, my personal journey in the quantum technology space actually began uh, over 15 years ago, where uh, upon finishing graduate school in the, in the US, um, had the uh, 
the insight or the opportunity to be exposed to the idea that we were now able to create quantum effects that didn't exist in nature. And as a result of creating these, these microscopic effects, there's a whole host of new capabilities that are about to, to unfold. So, of course, you would have late um, been reading about quantum computing and the opportunity for dramatic step change there. Um, imaging, uh, where you can imagine uh, uh, being able to locate a cancerous cell when it was at single cell level, or sensing to be able to detect uh, objects under sea. Uh, but also applications of cybersecurity, which at that time looked closest to market that really piqued my interest. And um, so I was interested to do a startup at that time and perhaps even be based in the United States. But um, I, uh, much to my amazement, in fact, I discovered at the uh, Australian National University, um, they were about to embark on some cutting edge research back at my doorstep in this field and uh, joined that program and uh, that began the journey in this field um, about a, uh, just over 10 years ago now. From that seed of science, we were able to found Quintessence Labs, which um, looks to address some of the challenges that will occur within cybersecurity as a result of quantum computing. Quantum computing will deliver some amazing advances in modeling systems, predicting what happens with new uh, medicines and drugs and new materials. But at the same time, it will actually challenge some of the mechanisms we use today for, for e-commerce, for example, or protecting sensitive information. Interestingly enough, Quantum has a, a solution to that as well. So Quintessence Lab's core capability today, if you like, is the ability to harness these microscopic quantum effects, synthesize those with an advanced uh, cybersecurity software stack to deliver strong data protection. And um, our offices today are headquarters still here in, in Australia, in Canberra. Um, however, we're a company that was, cybersecurity knows no geographic boundaries. So we're born global. Um, and our, our first overseas office was established uh, in, uh, uh, in the Silicon Valley in the, in the US. We're fortunate enough, uh, actually, uh, NASA Ames Research Center gave us some, some space on their campus actually right next to Google, which <laughs> quite exciting. Um, but since then now we've actually moved into South San Jose. We have representation on the US East Coast um, because a lot of our federal customers, of course, are, are based there and we can service the financial markets that, that uh, um, I guess Philip uh, was, was uh, referring to from there uh, and representation in the, in the UK. We are now looking at uh, uh, hopefully over the course of the next 12 months, representation in EU and uh, potentially Singapore for the Asia, Asia PAC region. And uh, perhaps just finally in closing, um, we have managed to establish a little bit of a global footprint with customers. US continues to be our largest market by a long shot, but we are in over a dozen Fortune 500 uh, companies today, um, being used for uh, mission critical applications and uh, in 11, 11 countries. Thanks, thanks, Vikram. Um, Alex, I admitted to ask you where your customers are in the US. Do you want to add um, where, whereabouts your customers are located? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, um, yeah, like, like Vikram was saying, um, we really had a global focus from day dot. 
um, we knew that the Australian market wasn't big enough um, because it was still, AR was still quite fledgling and web AR was definitely, you know, a small subset of that at the time. Um, so our focus to launch was actually on the US because we'd spent a lot of time there, both working with vendors plus um, at a lot of the kind of emerging um, kind of industry events and that type of thing. And we'd seen the most interest there and the most chatter online. So it's really, I think across the US, um, we had, when we launched um, just organically, a lot of our customers were in the education market, which was really interesting. So um, a lot in the K to 12 and also in the e-learning market. Um, they were from across the US. We tended to have uh, teachers and educators that were kind of excited by new technologies that were the first to pick it up. And then we'd see them, you know, kind of spread it word of mouth through not only, not only their schools, but their regions as well, when they went to, to different events um, face to face. Um, so yeah, really not a specific place. Um, talk a little bit more about how our market, our primary market's changing, but um, we're now starting to see in the US kind of centers um, of, of customers or clusters in a lot of the creative cities. So definitely kind of East Coast, um, New York, definitely San Francisco, um, and um, interestingly kind of Philadelphia and those types of places too, but really the breadth of, of the US. Alex. Philip, I'm going to come back to you to ask you about um, the, what you would say would be the most important thing that you learned um, from your entry to the US market and, and what you think would be the most helpful to others who would be looking to perhaps follow your example. Sure, Claire. Um, look, it's really interesting, uh, you know, first of all is to work out what your strategy is going to be. Um, and, and within that, uh, we decided to go after the USA market because it was where most of our target companies were. And we also set ourselves up like uh, Alexandra and Vikram as you've got to be able to deliver anywhere, anytime. And so, so we, we did a bit of uh, as much desk research as we could. And um, a few months out from going to the USA to do a launch. I was sitting at an Amcham function next to a lady named Trina Blair, uh, her company's uh, FD Global Connections. And I said, oh, we, we, we're going to launch in uh, New York in a, a few months time. And she said, oh, that's interesting. Do you know what I do, Philip? And she basically told me, I help companies set up in the USA. And it was probably one of the most fortuitous meetings that I ever had because of one key piece of advice that I've learned here is the USA market is uncharted waters and you definitely need a pilot to guide you through that. Otherwise, you'll spend a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of money doing things that are never going to pay off. And also the regulations and compliance are uh, much different uh, to, to Australia. And the last thing you want to do is inadvertently, uh, you know, not, uh, not do that properly. So the number one thing is I would suggest that you tap into somebody who can help you pilot through that. And not only that, uh, Trina was great in terms of, um, uh, you've heard the term six degrees of uh, 
of separation. Well, well, Trina's broken that rule. Her, her rule is about one degree of separation, I've found out. So she was fantastic at being able to introduce us to senior executives of major corporates, which we just would have had no way of accessing otherwise. It would have been incredibly difficult. So a big shout out to Trina and her help. Um, the second thing is, and again, Trina was, was helpful in uh, guiding us here, make sure you get professional help. So the visa situation is extremely important. And uh, we used uh, Fragman, who's one of our AmCham uh, colleagues, and they are very helpful. Definitely not an area to try DIY. It does cost a bit to get it right, but the cost of getting it wrong could prevent you doing business in the USA. So please get advice on that. Um, also, we were very fortunate uh, with the, our tax accountant regulation. One of our clients here in Australia had set up a global network of tax accountants and, and Peter Harper from Messina. He's based in, uh, in Atlanta and he's an Australian guy who now lives in the USA. So the advantage of somebody who's across both Australian tax and US tax is, is just, uh, just makes a huge amount of difference. So, um, so I definitely make sure you get advice on that because you've also got to make it easy for your clients to do business with. And, and Victor, you were talking about the, the, the East Coast there. Well, it became pretty evident we needed to set up a USA company because if we didn't have that, then we put onerous conditions on our clients because they'd have to go into withholding tax and all of these types of things. So really think through once you're starting to get, before you're getting business, how are you going to handle the business? What do you need to have set up uh, set up in advance? So definitely speak to the uh, accountants on that. And, and also uh, from that visa, um, people may be familiar with the E3 visa. If they're not, look it up online. It's a, a unique visa to Australia, uh, in, into America. And, and every time I go into USA Customs, they say, you're lucky with the E3 visa. So it, it really does help to, to the extent that if you've got a, a partner, uh, the, the, you know, going through it, the partner can be open to work there as well. Again, get proper advice on that. But also uh, make sure you, you get your personal tax lined up because if you've got to file a USA tax return, then boy, have you got an interesting time to look forward to. <laughs> and people that don't Vikram, I can see you smiling in you as well, Alexandra. Um, you really do need to have help on that because it's a lot more complex. And, and even little things just like trying to uh, set up a USA bank account. So again, Trina was really, uh, really helpful for us. And she introduced us to a banker in the USA who, who helped do that. But I find the banking executives in the USA are quite different than here in Australia. So really early on the pace, they go, oh, you need to meet Bill and Mary and Jim. And all of a sudden they're connecting people who can help you. And, and I've never really had that with a banking situation here in Australia. So if you get a good banker, they're interested in making sure you're successful because it helps their business. But one of the other key things I've found is, and I'll talk about a bit later, is it's really important to develop your networks. I was amazed at how much business is done by networking in the USA and give you a quick example. Um, the uh, couple of years back, uh, the, the Australian American Association and, and, and the former ambassador to Australia, John Berry, had set up uh, the uh, 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 commemoration of the Coral Sea War. 
And uh, so I thought, wow, that's going to be great. So I booked him to go along to that. And, and then we had two very important and unintended guests being President Donald Trump and uh, uh, Prime Minister Turnbull at that time. So it's really important. And because what you generally do is meet people there. And I had one person that said, would you like to meet the CHRI with one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies in America? And I said, well, let me think about that for a nanosecond. But yeah, sure, that would be really helpful. So um, really look at how you can build networks because a lot of business is done that way and you can get access to people that you'd never have a chance to otherwise. So they're, they're the two key takeouts for me, Claire. Sorry, Claire, I can't hear you. Sorry, the network thing is really interesting. We have, um, we've done some research looking at that in, in other spheres. And one of the things we've found is that in Australia, we, um, we are not as well networked as uh, the US is. Um, and that's, that is, I think, one of the things that when we're thinking about entrepreneurship, that we need to really work harder at that, particularly building global networks. And um, um, yeah, it's one of the areas where we've actually done some analysis looking at the connections that Australian companies have compared to the connections that US companies have and found that, that Australia um, is, is not as well connected as the US, nor in particular um, fields as well connected as New Zealand. So if you're interested in that research, have a look. Um, um, have a look out for that as well. That's for, for you uh, participants um, in this. In this. Um, but I want to um, pick up on something that you said, Alex, which was around um, the fact that it was the, um, that it was teachers who were really interested in technology who were uh, some of the people that, that first picked up on the um, tech. The, um, you know, augmented reality is one of those mainstays of the, um, or has been over the few, few years, a mainstay of a hype cycle, um, which is now probably starting to come into its own. How, how different is the US market in their attitude to, to, the, to your product? And how does that differ from what you see in Australia? And how have you had to kind of keep pace being at the cutting edge? Have you had to, I expect you've had to pivot quite a lot to meet the market. It'd be great to hear a little bit about that. Yeah, so great question, Claire, thank you. Um, yeah, I think it's, to be honest, it's been really challenging since day one too, just because we are working and have been working in an emerging technology. Um, and I think, you know, we've every, every few months, you know, some hype cycle charts get, get rolled out and, you know, it's kind of is, is AR the next big thing or is it, you know, not. Um, we've really tried to focus on the benefits of, experiences that can be created by AR rather than the technology itself. For us, the technology should be seamless. It shouldn't matter whether, you know, a goal is being delivered or, or a, a piece of communication or learning material being delivered by AR, the web or something else. It needs to work and it needs to, to achieve its goal. Um, I think teacher, the teachers that jumped on the kind of, in, on, as, on as early adopters, um, and I think especially coming from the US, they didn't necessarily have a lot of funding and they were real go-getters and they were just really excited by new technologies and they inspired that kind of excitement in their students as well. <laughs> um, and definitely, and going back to kind of what Philip was saying as well, um, and then the research that you were referring to, I think Australia um, 
tends to be a lot more risk averse than the US as a, as a kind of mentality or a mindset. Um, I think people in the US, when they like something, and, and I think what Philip said, they really want to see your business succeed, they'll talk to anyone and everyone about it where they think that's going to benefit the other person and benefit you. Whereas in Australia, I think we're a little bit more guarded or have traditionally been a little bit more guarded. I'm seeing that starting to change now as well. Um, and that said too, early on, we were approached by a number of VCs in the US um, for funding too. And, and, you know, really it was well before we had a kind of solid business model. Um, you know, it was kind of finger in the air. We're not really sure where this is going to go. We think it's going to go well, but, you know, it, it could take a while. Um, we didn't end up taking on funding at that point in time. And that was primarily because the kind of key caveat was that we moved to the US. Um, and as much as I love the US and I've lived there previously for quite a few years, um, at this point in my life, that wasn't something that I really wanted to do. Um, you know, I kind of had family here, friends here and a life here. And, you know, we firmly believed that we could run a business from this country too. Um, one of the big areas that we pivoted, I think, in the last 12 months um, was not really planned for initially. We really started to see kind of creative technologists um, and marketing agencies and kind of creative teams inside large corporations across different sectors, so pharmaceutical, health, um, government agencies, that type of thing even, um, starting to see the benefits of kind of AR and VR in the web. and they kind of started reaching out to us and saying, we really want to partner with you. We really want to kind of use your platform as our own platform for our customers. So, you know, as much as we love education, there's definitely larger budgets in the kind of creative and, and marketing sector. So we've, we've introduced a range of new products. Um, one of the biggest is that we enable our customers now to completely white label their experiences. So to remove all of our branding. <laughs> so we're not only seeing kind of marketing and creative um, companies using us, but we're seeing now kind of, you know, the burgeoning AR and VR um, kind of agency field and platform field, it, it's starting to emerge and they're actually using our platform as their kind of core engine. So really for their customers, they're thinking that they're using you know, their platform and their offering. Um, and from our perspective, we don't really mind if we're the biggest brand in, in this field that no one knows about. Um, we really want to just power kind of our customers to be able to create. Um, so yeah, so while we're still definitely supporting Edu and seeing some really interesting growth there, um, definitely we've shifted across to that more kind of creative technologist and marketing focus. Great, thanks, Alex. It strikes me, Vikram, that there's some similarities there in terms of uh, the quintessence technology and how that becomes a platform underpinning um, the technology of others. Is, is, that, is that right? Um, yeah, so I think a, a couple, picking up on a couple of points that uh, Philip and Alex made, uh, uh, I think uh, similar to their journeys, uh, there was the opportunity also for us um, particularly if we wanted to uh, seek an accelerated funding um, trajectory or have that. Uh, but that required relocation of uh, a large part of the organization, if not the majority, to the United States in most cases. Um, we elected uh, not to. Uh, I think one was ideologically to try and have some of the 
value capture from deep science occur in, in country in Australia. But I think as, as it has played out, we've actually benefited from having a model whereby a lot of the R&D actually occurs in Australia with then manufacturing and business development occurring in United States and, and other, other locations, particularly given uh, the, the cost of labor here and a favorable exchange rate at the moment, uh, we're probably, if we wanted to retain the same talent in the Valley, for example, Silicon Valley, we would have an adder of, uh, I'm gonna say of, of the order of about 50%. So from a business model perspective, it's really worked very well for us. Um, I think uh, sort of one of the issues you had uh, picked up before, Claire, was, you know, what do we see as differences um, between Australia and the United States in the, both the government and uh, private sectors. So I, th I think uh, 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 mirroring again what was said previously, um, Certainly in the, in the private sector, in the um, United States, we've really seen that desire to, to chase innovation and where they see something that they believe it may have risk associated with it, but it does have a potential payoff. There is that desire to, to, to embrace that risk because of the potential payoff, uh, payoff with the full understanding that that may, uh, may not always succeed. I think we see as a slightly different perspective generally in enterprises in, in Australia where um, it, it's driven by either regulation, we're in cybersecurity, so of course regulation plays a, an important role there. Um, and the other is to uh, uh, potentially follow the lead of what uh, um, large US organizations have done. However, that being said, we were very fortunate in our journey to establish a, a relationship, this was in our case, one of large banks here, Westpac, who actually had somebody head of strategy who was actually quite forward looking. And um, we were able to not only get them as a customer, but they wanted to do it. So enamored by what we were doing in alignment with their own thinking around cybersecurity, that they took an investment stake, which uh, was critical in enabling us to, we're still more than 95% Australian owned. Um, looking at the government sector, perhaps it's been a little bit, bit the flip, not exactly, but to some extent, We've been very fortunate to be uh, well supported uh, through the Department of Defense. They have um, um, two large scale programs. One is what they call the Defense Innovation Hub, which is a $600 million program over 10 years. And the other is the Next Gen Technologies Fund. Again, another $720 million program. Um, that's, that's really now they've just revected it through something called Starshots. So a lot of great support to continue to mature that technology domestically. Also, um, I think as my colleagues probably would have also experienced uh, Oz industry and, um, and Oz trade, I think have been great sources of, of advice and indeed uh, support through uh, programs like the Export Market Development Grant, um, which really helps you in those early days when you're establishing overseas. Because those costs are non-trivial. You sometimes go with the mindset that, well, you know, <laughs> we'll just hire one person there and uh, kind of pay that salary and uh, see how that works out. But I think probably the experience of most people is the reality is you need that person, you need some infrastructure around them very rapidly. They need other support personnel. So, um, you know, almost in a blink of an eye, you could be looking at something like a half a million dollars a, a year if you want something of, of some substance. And of course, it just grows from there. Um, but um, while we didn't qualify for uh, 
support from US government programs because they were where the R&D would occur within the United States. We have been fortunate in the more recent times now to engage in some large scale um, defense programs that are there or more generally federal programs. So one particularly that's run by Department of Homeland Security. So I guess I would say it was a multi-year journey to get there. Um, but the, the, the real attractiveness of that is the scale of the opportunity. So this particular program um, is a $2 billion program administered by the Department of Homeland Security on behalf of 100 different US agencies. So um, um, I guess it requires persistence and it requires financial runway to be able to support that. Um, but if, if you are able to, to make it through that journey and come out the other end, I think the opportunities which open up to you uh, in the United States are, as my colleagues I think have noted at a scale, unparalleled elsewhere in the world. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Vikram. Um, the scale of the US um, is such that it, it becomes a really attractive market for, for Australian companies and, and global companies like the, the companies that, that you three have started, which have been global from day one, um, you know, can really have that, really have that opportunity. I want to turn now to some of the impacts of downturns and recessions. You know, up until this point, I think Australia has had 28 years of constant economic growth, but other countries around the world haven't, haven't had that experience. And um, I mentioned right at the beginning, um, at the opening about one of the things we looked at is what happens to entrepreneurship during, during um, times of, where there's a downturn. And, and what we found was that as unemployment increases, and it's not really surprising, but as unemployment increases, rates of entrepreneurship increase, increases as well. Um, and that the companies that were that are successful through those periods are companies that tend to have products and services that are based on radical innovation, something that's really new, um, that serves an emerging need in a market and that is using established technology standards. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting when you look back is that there are some really significant companies, US companies that emerged after the global financial crisis. Airbnb, Uber and Dropbox all emerged in the US after the global financial crisis and are all really different ways of, um, of interacting with technology and, um, and, and life as, as we kind of know it. Um, and so I wanted to just really turn to perhaps thinking a little bit or experiences that you guys have had um, during this COVID-19 season. And Philip, I want to start with you. You um, New York, New York was your kind of initial market, and New York has been really hard hit by um, by COVID nineteen. What are you? How how are you seeing the impact of COVID nineteen impacting New York companies um, and and businesses, and the ones that you're working with, and others that you come into contact with? And what are the opportunities that you see for entrepreneurs generally out of this out of this period? That would probably be a bit better. Thanks, Claire. Um, look, uh, we've, we've been talking to a lot of our clients over in the US and, and everybody's been, um, you know, quite shocked by this. And, and, and also the amount of people that, uh, one of the people in particular we work with as a senior HR person and said, look, I'm, I'm spending more time taking calls from people saying, 
this is causing me a huge amount of stress, etc. So we're talking to them about how developing some of the mental thinking capability can help with resilience. But what is interesting, I have noticed a bit of a change in tone over the past, uh, it's only the past week or so, is that people are starting to look up and look forward. And, and I am impressed by the way that a lot of them seem to be bouncing back. So um, it's not completely open for business now, but I'm sensing that they're a bit tired of sitting around doing, uh, uh, you know, stuck in their own homes and they are wanting to engage more. So, so there's the, the, I think there's two things, a, a little bit of leveraging up the strategy we've used and for companies going into startups. As I said, making networks is probably the most important thing. So if you're not an American, a member of the American Chamber of Commerce, I'd suggest you do it because they'll show you how to network and they'll ask you, how can we help you? And, and that's both here and overseas from there. Austrade's fantastic with Nikki there and uh, the New South Wales Consul General with Alistair and, and Melina have done a great job. There's also the Australian American Association with John Berry. There's Advance Australia. Um, and even funny little things like I joined a sporting association called Play Rugby USA, which is a charity group. And they have in the US gala seasons. And they're just great chances to meet people that have got a common interest in a lot of senior executives. But we've had to pivot how we do that. So linking in with USSC and webinars, um, AAA is doing the same thing, AmCham is doing the same thing. So really have a look at how you can do that in, in the COVID area. And uh, with people starting to, to open up, I think, think you need to adapt your approach. So what we've done is we used to run live breakfast events. So our clients, BCG, Nespresso Chanel, they'd host us in their offices. We'd have people that would share their experience and, and it gave an opportunity for, for new companies to find out about it. But now we have to adapt and use a webinar. So we'll have a single client and we'll still be invitation only and it's still kind of an intimate gathering from there. So same concept, different medium. Also, I'd suggest um, make it easy for companies to engage with you. So give them that something's a little bite-sized chunk. I mean, we can do our test online and that's an easy thing to do. We've also packaged delivery. So I've got people in the US who do it. We've been using Zoom all the time, but we've repackaged it into bite-sized chunks so they can do a little bit at a time. And once they've done that, they can do a bit more. So it's really about making it easy to connect, make it easy for a company to engage with you and buy your services which is a bit of a different strategy for what we were doing where we were looking at bigger programs with companies. So that, that'd be uh, the thing that I would be encouraging people to do. And, and, and again, uh, you know, if you meet an interesting speaker or somebody there, reach out through LinkedIn. And it's amazing how often, you know, people will get back to you, but make it very personal, very specific about them don't use a generalized one because it just goes straight in the straight in the bin otherwise. So they're, they're kind of the, the, the tips that I would have. And, um, and also just one other tip with, with something Vikram was saying, if you're a small startup, so we use Surcorp, which is an Australian company, which have got offices spread throughout the USA. They've got four offices there in their virtual office. So it just allows you to kind of set up in a way that somebody in the US answers the phone in your company name etc. before you get to the bigger expense, which Vikram has had to go through from there. So there's just a few tips 
I would suggest to, to attack the market in COVID and, and watch your costs as you're doing it. Thanks, Philip. Um, Alex, I know that your company um, has been global from day one, but also you've, you've kind of been a pioneering company in terms of remote working. Lots of companies now coming to grips with remote working. What, what, um, what advice do you have for, for other entrepreneurs who are, who are getting to grips with uh, remote working from a pioneering company in this space? Um, yeah, interesting. It's, it kind of feels like we've been doing this for so long. I'm, I'm not sure I remember what working in a real office is like. Um, and I think, you know, since COVID-19 and the different lockdown strategies being implemented around the world, we haven't changed what we do day to day very much, um, with the exception of some of our team based out of Europe um, with small children. They've been working reduced hours since probably early March. Um, but they're now starting to come back on um, full-time as well. Um, yeah, so really working in a distributed team is largely in our DNA. Uh, we haven't had a physical office while we've been running or while we've had this company at all. At all, um, We started doing that at a previous company we had that was largely doing kind of bespoke software development for, for big enterprise. Um, when we went into the GFC, we noticed that none of our customers wanted to come into our office anymore. They were firmly staying in their own office. So a lot of our team started working from home and at that stage they were pretty much all Australian based. And um, when our lease was up in our office, we kind of decided to trial for six months what it would be like with everyone working from home. And at the end of that six month period, no one, no one wanted to come back. They kind of realised that working from home meant they had all this extra flexibility um, and that, you know, work and the rest of their life didn't need to be these two really separate things. I think there's pros and cons to that. I think working from home, you need to manage that, that whole um, idea that you're not feeling like you're always working or always on call. Um, but really, I think the biggest thing with working with a distributed team is that a remote team is communication. And I know that pretty much everyone says that all the time. And with online platforms like Zoom, with Microsoft Teams, with Slack, um, it kind of can seem like we've got all the communication channels ticked off um, and, and, you know, we can communicate in lots of different ways and still with email. But we personally find that communication is probably our constant challenge um, within the team. And we all know each other really well. But our always-on channel is IRC. So... People really laugh at that and think we're super old school, especially for a technology company. But I think the reality is with it is that it really is just Slack without the pretty interface. Um, for us, we're very careful about security. So that's on our own server. It's not on a third party um, and it is secure. And we have everything literally from our product discussions, our daily standups that we jokingly call sit downs because we're sitting at our desk, not moving. Um, you know, to code reviews, to team drinks, and then we can take those discussions and turn them into documentation and specs really easily from that. So we found that it really shortcuts a lot of the process. Um, but I think one of the biggest challenges with communication is that we found it really imperative to ensure that just because someone says they understand something and they've read what you've written or listened to what you've said, it doesn't mean that their understanding is the same as your intent. So we find that the biggest thing is we often go back through discussions with people and get them to summarise or get them to ask real questions. So um, in their own words, to make sure that we've got a really cohesive understanding as a team. So that's probably the biggest thing. 
Um, I think hiring for distributed teams is really interesting. So one of the, the things that we do is we start our, because we, I mean, one of the big, big pros is that you've got a global talent field, so or talent pool. Um, and one of the first things we do is get people to do their first two interviews over IRC and with a couple of people in our team as well. So we can then understand what their communication style is like um, in a written format. A lot of the time English is not their first language and that's completely okay. Um, but we also find that most people will find it easier to write in English than sometimes speak in English, especially, you know, if, if, if speaking, if native English speakers are speaking quite quickly. Um, and then I think many of our team like have never met face to face. Um, so it's really important to develop that rapport that works in online communication. And then flexibility and trust is another key. So I don't think any of us work nine to five. Um, we all work across different time zones. We support um, every time zone. So we try as much as we can to kind of share two to four hours a day across different time zones. And that means that some people start really early at five or six, some work till really late, but it also means again, they've got the flexibility around their day. Um, yeah, and I think people either love that or they don't like it. And, and you know, there are different strategies to, to help people adapt to that. And I think that as we start seeing businesses want to get or bring their people back into the face-to-face -face workplace. I think um, there'll be some changes in policies because I think definitely parts of the workforce won't want to come back into those. So I think you'll start to see um, <coughs> adaptation and more flexibility kind of built in. But yeah, does that answer your question? Sorry, um, I think anybody who's watching this who um, has been struggling with remote working will probably be pinging you, Alex, and asking you to give them a big detailed, um, you should, maybe you should write a book about, you know, how to get the best out of a remote working team. Um, I know you guys have been doing it for a long time, and I know that there are a lot of companies that are really brand new to it. Um, I'm just keeping an eye on the time because we've, we've only got about five minutes left. But um, Vikram, one of the, I wanted to ask you about manufacturing because of all the companies that we've got here today, you, you're a company that, that is also manufacturing hardware. There's been a lot of conversation about manufacturing in the last, I don't know, month, I reckon, where I think um, Australia has woken up to an understanding that we don't manufacture things like we used to and that that has had some direct impact on um, our ability to respond um, due to the challenges to the supply chain around COVID-19. So I wanted to ask you about um, manufacturing um, and your expertise in that area, particularly um, how you went about establishing that team in the US um, that leads your manufacturing and why you chose the US to be um, the place where, you'd man when you, where you're manufacturing. Um, yeah, great question there, Claire, and something I guess we spent uh, quite a lot of cycles thinking carefully about. Um, I guess the, the reasons that you'd look for outsourcing your manufacturing are either efficiencies on, on cost, um, scalability, or access to advanced manufacturing technology. So in, in our case, all our initial products were kind of cobbled together in a little lab and you know, we'd send out things with wires hanging in and out and so on for our initial customers. But um, fairly early on, we uh, recognized that uh, 
if we were ever to, to get these things to commercial scale, we needed a sophistication um, of a well-qualified advanced manufacturer. So the choices were, um, you know, whether we, we go to lower uh, cost-based manufacturing uh, countries, such as in, in our region, or um, we look at something uh, like uh, Europe or indeed the United States. So in our case, um, perhaps even a little in advance of some of the conversations you were just referring to in your, in your question there, um, somewhat fortuitously, we had made the decision that we thought our expectation was that it would, it already was important at that time, but we expect it would become increasingly important to our customers to have the traceability um, of, of supply chain. So hence, we, we took the decision to manufacture in the, in the US, um, where um, I was very lucky, actually, the, the person that we hired and who still runs our US operation, I'm going to call Mark Crowley, and believe it or not, was a, a, a buddy of mine from when I was at graduate school in the United States. He was a superstar in a very large aerospace manufacturing company. And now here I was a small entrepreneur. We, never, we were great friends, but never thought of paths would cross career-wise. But as we were looking for somebody to, um, um, to run US for us, it was very fortuitous, he was available. But uh, the, the point where it ties into this conversation is that he had great expertise for this big aerospace company. He ran supply chain for many, many years at very large scale. So had great expertise in being able to find us the right manufacturing partners. And really, as we looked into it, it was an eye-opener to me the specialization and the depth of expertise that exists within manufacturing in the United States. Furthermore, one of the things which, if anybody is thinking of manufacturing in the US, is we, we got a, um, a, an agency that actually helps us manage a contract manufacturer in turn. And that's been fantastic in really making sure you get the right contract manufacturer and that you have the right kinds of contractual arrangements with them. Um, and of course, you know, it's as the world now is more and more in looking at um, how supply chains should, should be shaped, I think we're seeing many of them are compressing them to become closer to, to the customer. Um, and we're, we're really fortunate to be in alignment with that trend. Just looking at the time here, I could go on for a long time, but perhaps as we have two minutes, I might hand it back to you to... Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank, thanks, Vikram. It's um, it's a very timely conversation. I think it's it's one that there's going to be a lot of focus on here in Australia, and I see that as having some really great opportunities for entrepreneurs here in Australia who are thinking about where would those you know those next kind of steps be. Technology and advanced manufacturing um, are going to be areas where there's a lot of focus, and um, and I think um, as you said. Bikram, um, in terms of some of the experience you had had in the US, when, when governments come, when governments see strategic opportunities and really put their kind of force behind that by um, developing um, programs to encourage uh, particular types of things to happen is when there, there are opportunities. And I can see that around advanced manufacturing in Australia that there's going to be, uh, that there's going to be focus. Um, in that area and I think that that creates opportunity for entrepreneurs uh, like like yourselves. Um, technology I think is the is the other one um, where there is really clear opportunities and I think coming out of this COVID-19 I think people have um, have really seen an acceleration in terms of the adoption of new technologies 
um, digitization throughout this. And I think that creates opportunities, Alex, for businesses like yours and Philip for businesses like yours as well. So I feel like we're kind of on the cusp of quite a lot of change that has been driven out of this very unfortunate pandemic situation, but, um, but that's gonna drive uh, opportunities for, for entrepreneurs. Um, the research that we, had, um, that we had published about a month ago is, is really um, designed to, to drive that, that behaviour and to, um, to stimulate a discussion about how we can be more entrepreneurial in Australia and um, to, to take those lessons of companies like the three companies that we've had today, the three CEOs that we've had join us today, um, who, are, who are examples of really entrepreneurial, really successful Australian companies with a global focus. And that I think is what we, we need more of. I'm really glad that you've been all able to join us today for this conversation and to learn some of the, um, to hear these stories, um, to hear some of these insights, to celebrate um, some great Australian ingenuity and Australian um, entrepreneurs. And so thank you everybody for joining us today.